so anybody who's not here can listen to it. And today I'm going to give an introduction, first of all, to what we call Johannine literature. And then I'm going to give an introduction to the Gospel of St. John. And uh, the reason I want to talk about Johannine literature first is that uh, we're pretty certain that either the author of the fourth gospel or one of his disciples wrote the three letters uh, that we call the epistles of St. John. Therefore, they are helpful in in interpreting the gospel. Uh, There's also a pretty strong tradition and, uh, you know, contemporary critics go back and forth on this. But there's a feeling that somehow the book of Revelation is connected to the gospel of John as well. And so, again, it's helpful to look at all of these things together and interpret them together. Uh, Because, according to tradition, the Gospel of St. John, the three epistles of St. John, and the Revelation of St. John uh, were, again, in the Western Church, understood to have been written by the Apostle John. Uh, We call them the the Johannine canon or the Johannine literature. Uh, this comes from the, the name Johannes, right, in Greek, and so Johannine. Um, now, I, I mentioned, I, I, I've sort of coded what I said there carefully, that this is in the Western tradition. There's been a lot of debate from the beginning of the church about who wrote these books. And in fact, the Gospel of John was not accepted in the Eastern church until somewhat late. And I mean somewhat late, I mean early 3rd century, it became kind of standard. And we have to remember that, uh, I'll talk more about when the Gospels were written, but uh, if you think back to say the year 65 or something, right? So 30 plus years after the resurrection, uh, there are probably no Gospels written down, okay? Uh, The Gospels are, the Synoptic Gospels, Mark is probably written in about 70. Um, Matthew and Luke somewhat later, John, we're not, I'm not sure to be honest with you, the estimates for John range from 60 to 120 AD, when it was written. Now, remember, this is not an age where you've got email, you don't even have printing presses. So if if St. John the, the Evangelist sits down in his study in Ephesus, uh, while, the, while the Virgin Mary's making dinner or whatever and writes down his gospel, uh, it may take several decades before this gospel gets to Rome. It may take several decades before this gospel even gets to Damascus, you know, some big cities. But first you have to make a copy. And if you've ever tried to write out uh, a gospel by hand, you'll appreciate just how long it takes. And again, we have the benefit of, of modern pens, paper. Uh, in the old days, uh, just to write at all, you had to have a quill and ink and, and uh, p- probably parchment or something like this. And it just took a long time because you really had to scrape the, your, your letters into this parchment so that it would actually become uh, legible. So it, it could take several decades before these books were circulating through the whole church. And this means that the Gospel of John was accepted as Uh, an authentic gospel at different times in different places. It caught on more early in the West for some reason in Rome. It was accepted very early, uh, early second century. It was considered an authentic gospel by one of the apostles. You'll remember Father Brendan last month was talking about St. Irenaeus, who's writing in about the year 220. And he makes mention of many gospels that were not considered authentic. Okay, so... uh, Within 200 years of the resurrection, there were many gospels that the church was saying, no, this isn't authentic doctrine. So again, now imagine that you're at the church at Rome and somebody shows up with this manuscript and says, yeah, this is the gospel according to John the apostle. Do you believe him? <laughs> and how do you know? You know, how do you know? So it takes some time. And it's not until St. Irenaeus himself that we really get a sense of the church saying yes to certain books, no to certain books, maybe to other books. You know, there are books that are kind of in the middle. They're considered uh, good representations of doctrine, but they're not considered Holy Scripture. So, for example, we have books like uh, The Shepherd of Hermas. Uh, It's a really wonderful book, but it's not in Holy Scripture. We have the letter of Pope Clement. So he wrote this pretty early, probably in the 90s, 
We have the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch, written in the, about 107. Uh, these were considered good, strong, holy books, but not scripture, okay? Um, you, you probably have heard of the Gospel of Thomas. This has a lot of sayings of the Lord in it, but ultimately was not considered scripture, nor was it considered a reliable guide to faith. Okay, so there's a lot of sorting out, and it's not a straightforward matter in the early church. In any case, uh, in trying to substantiate who wrote this gospel, etc., there was a lot of discussion. The, the author does not name himself in the gospel. Uh, he alludes to himself. He says he's the beloved disciple, but he doesn't give himself a name. Uh, so throughout the gospel, if you read it, I'd encourage you to read it. It's not very long. <laughs> It's, uh, you, you can read it in about an hour and a half if you're a fast reader. Uh, if you want to understand it, you'll probably linger a little longer on certain passages because it's not an easy gospel to understand. But uh, you'll see that the, the beloved disciple is mentioned several places, but he's not named as John, uh, the apostle. We know the name of John from the synoptics, the Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay. And... Um, the name John does appear in Revelation. The author of Revelation calls himself John, but he doesn't call himself the apostle. <laughs> so there are theories in the early church already that there are two different Johns, okay? And John was a very common name at the time. So who, we don't really know. Uh, tradition in the West has said all these books are written by John the apostle. Um, tradition in the East has been a little more fluid uh, and the, the, the book of Revelation has been considered to be written by a different John, John the Presbyter, uh, second generation after the apostles. Uh, but in any case, there's, there are clearly links between all of these books. And so I'm going to start with the Gospel of John because that's the most influential and most important of them. The Gospel is always the most important, reporting uh, the actual events of the life of our Lord. But then, as I say, we'll want to look at the letters as well and Revelation. And um, I probably don't need to tell you this, but if you read Revelation, um, don't try to interpret it literally. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a book uh, uh, written in a prophetic style of metaphor. You know, it, it's not, um, it's, it's written in code. It's written at a time of persecution of the church. And so you couldn't come out and say what was what. You had to use a certain um, elliptical way of writing. So today, though, I'm going to focus on a, an overview of the Gospel of John. And um, here's another thing about uh, uh, the Gospels. Just in general, the earliest written works of the disciples of Jesus are the letters of St. Paul. In my opinion, uh, I, I, I take a minority view on this, but in my opinion, his earliest letter is the letter to the Galatians, which I think was written in about the year 49. Uh, this, the more typical view is that the first letter to the Thessalonians is the earliest, and that's written in about 51 or 52. Okay, I agree that that was written in about 51 or 52. I just think Galatians was written earlier for various reasons. Uh, his last letter is probably either Romans or 2 Timothy. And these are written, um, you know, before the year 60. So uh, the earliest writings we've got about Jesus of Nazareth are letters. Uh, no one thought at, that, at this time to write down a, a biography or a gospel. Didn't, it didn't, wasn't a, a, a priority for the early Christians. Uh, what seems to have moved this along again is, is the, uh, the, the apostles are starting to die off. Uh, so James is executed at about 40 something, 42 maybe. Uh, Steve, Stephen was executed before that. And there's a sense that the first, the eyewitnesses are going to die out. So uh, we want to write down what they know about what they saw Jesus doing, right? This is one of the key themes in the Gospel of John is that the beloved disciple is an eyewitness. He says this at several points. I saw this happen. Uh, one of the places is where the, the soldier pierces the side of Jesus while he's hanging on the cross and, and water and blood flow out. He, he says, I testify to this. I saw it, okay? 
So this, we want to write down these eyewitness reports while the, the persons who saw it were still around. The second impetus for writing down the Gospels was the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. Uh, so as you know from, from hearing the Gospels, there was a lot of agitation between Rome that uh, had annexed the Holy Land as a province within its empire. Uh, this happened as a result of the, the Maccabees appealing to Rome in about the year 130 BC, asking for help against the, the Greeks who were uh, persecuting them at the time. And uh, if you go to the second book of Maccabees, there's this wonderful discussion about how uh, the Romans are very honorable people and very powerful, so let's invite them to help us out against the Greeks. So the Romans come in and say, great, and then they stay, as they typically did, <laughs> and they impose Roman law and taxation and everything. And this is a real problem uh, in uh, Jewish theology at the time of Jesus because uh, God's chosen people should be free of this kind of uh, overlordship by a foreign pagan Gentile people, right? And so we see that uh, many of those who followed our Lord were hoping that he'd, he'd overthrow the Romans and institute a, a sort of theocracy in Jerusalem. Uh, it, it didn't happen. In fact, he, he was... He ended up crucified. Crucifixion is a form of execution that's Roman. It's not, you know, the, uh, the high priests say to Pilate, you know, we, we're not allowed to put anyone to death uh, because uh, it's, it's a bit of a cop-out on their part because <laughs> the reason they're not allowed to put anyone to death is because Rome actually governs the province at this point. And that's one of the Romans' priorities that they keep for themselves is capital punishment. In any case, uh, I'm saying all this because, again, for us, our, our initial encounter with the gospel, sort of capital G, the, 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 the proclamation that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Son of God, he's risen from the dead. Our first encounter with this is through hearing the gospel, small g, one of the gospels, read at mass or reading it. Okay, but this was not how the gospel, capital G, was preached in the early church. It was more occasional. Uh, there was a sense of urgency about the Lord's immediate return. And as things unfolded, the apostles started to die off. Jerusalem was overthrown. Uh, certain persons felt it was time to write down these traditions about our Lord. Uh, the synoptic tradition, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, these... Three Gospels are called synoptic because they have the same optic, right? Uh, which is to say they follow the same plot. They often copy each other word for word in, in the, say, the, the parables that Jesus tells. They have some differences because they're writing for different audiences. Um, again, Mark perhaps is writing for the, the Christians in Rome. Matthew's perhaps writing for the Christians in Antioch. And Luke is writing for the Christians somewhere else in Syria. Uh, we're not entirely sure. Those are the best guesses based on the kinds of concerns they show by how they organize their material. But uh, if you hear someone read from one of the three synoptic gospels, if you're not really trained in critical studies of these gospels, you might have a hard time figuring out which gospel it's from. You know, so for instance, if I tell you, you know, only one of the Gospels has the story of the three wise men. <laughs> Do you know which one it is? Anybody know? Yeah. Matthew. Matthew. Yeah, good. Good for you. Yeah. And you know, I could go on with similar things. Um, you know, one of the Gospels has no story of Jesus' birth at all. That's Mark. Okay. So different Gospels had different concerns. And so one of the things we'll be looking at when we talk about John's <coughs> Gospel is why is he writing this? What does he want to communicate? Who's he writing to? And, and how does this shape his selection of material and then how he presents it to us? Um, so another reason the Gospels, in my opinion, were written down, this goes along with what Father Brendan has been saying in his last couple of talks. That is that the Gospels are preached in a particular kind of culture, just as they are today when we preach the Gospel in our culture. We have both to find a way to translate it into terms that people, you know, who live with us here in Chicago understand. At the same time, we have to be careful to distinguish it from things that sound like the gospel but aren't, right? 
So the things that look like they might be Christian, say like tolerance, you know, this is sort of the great virtue of our contemporary culture. Um, but if tolerance is used to, as a way of tolerating sin, for example, we have to say, well, that's not really what the gospel says. The gospel invites us to repent, to identify sins for what they are and, and repent of them. Uh, yes, we have to love the sinner and so on, uh, but we also have a duty to um, understand God's law and try to fulfill it. So just in the Hellenistic milieu of the gospels, what I mean by that is um, about 300 years before Christ, Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world. And wherever he went, he brought the culture of the Greeks, uh, which we call Hellenism. Uh, and this, it, it, the, the Greeks were very smart, <laughs> uh, as I'm sure you know. And so the, the thinking of the philosophers of the Greeks, uh, the, the emphasis on uh, virtue that the Greeks held, virtue not only in, in sort of what we would consider the moral life, but also say in physical life, so the importance of exercise, of, of sport and uh, competition, uh, the, the importance of theater and art and poetry. Uh, these things all informed the, the, the known world from sort of Rome and Spain and the West all the way to India where, where Alexander died. And this includes the Middle East where the Holy Land is. And so when I mentioned the Maccabees sort of revolting against the Greeks, Part of what's going on is the Greeks are building gymnasia and uh, temples in Jerusalem. And the Jews of the time are saying, no, we don't want this. We want to preserve our own culture. Okay, so this is part of the background. Um, how do the Gospels figure into this? Part of this broad milieu, uh, it's normally something that's kind of blamed on Plato, is an emphasis on a kind of intellectualism or, or concern for a rigorous type of thinking that tends to denigrate our embodiedness, okay? So um, just to give a, an example from a slightly later time, the philosopher Plotinus, who was a follower of Plato, but lived about a century and a half after our Lord, uh, was very influential for people like St. Augustine. He actually says in one of his writings, according, actually according to one of his disciples, that he was embarrassed to be in a body, okay? So the idea that uh, our minds are what count as what is human, thinking clearly, understanding how we understand is really important for a certain type of Greek culture. Problem with this is it gives rise to uh, two heresies, one we broadly call Gnosticism, in which we're saved by having a certain type of knowledge rather than saved by, say, the sacraments, baptism and the Eucharist, which, re which require us to be in bodies, you know? You can't be baptized just as a spirit. You have to get in the font with your whole body or have you know, water, actual water poured over your own head. So if you don't have a head, if you don't have a body, you can't be baptized, right? If, if you don't have a body, you can't consume the Holy Eucharist. And if, if we don't have bodies, our Lord himself couldn't have appeared in a body, right? Uh, so Gnosticism is this idea that we're only saved by thinking right thoughts, not by being incorporated into the body of Christ and that the whole uh, body is saved. We believe in the resurrection of the dead, which includes the resurrection of our bodies, right? Uh, for a certain type of Greek thinker, this would be kind of distasteful because our bodies, you know, they fall apart and they have sort of undignified uh, processes that they go through and so on. Um, so that, that's very broadly Gnosticism. Docetism is another related heresy. This comes from the Greek word to seem. And what this is is that... Uh, it's a form of Gnosticism, but of a very particular type. So our Lord appears in a body, but it's only a fake body. It only seems to be a body. And he's calling us out of the body, right? Because the body, again, is just something we need to leave behind if we're going to be saved. So, um, again, in my opinion, one of the reasons that the gospel writers are committing to paper 
the, the story of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ is, is to show that our bodies and everything that goes with them, being born into the world of uh, human parents, having a family, having kinsfolk, being in a culture, having a history, like all of these things actually are willed by God as good and are not to be dispensed with. The gospels show us this very clearly because our Lord, and, and John's especially keen on this. Okay, so for example, in, in chapter four of John's gospel, Jesus and his disciples are, are walking through Samaria and Jesus sits down by a well and it says he was tired and he was, he was thirsty, right? So these are the sorts of things that if, if you think the body is bad or somehow it's a corruption of who we really are, you wouldn't want to admit that God, <laughs> when he comes and, and reveals himself on earth, would actually stoop to the level of being thirsty. For that matter, would stoop to the level of dying, right? So uh, the, the gospels want to make very clear that when, when God sent his son into the world, he does so really as a human being. The, the incarnation is one of the central things that, that John is really concerned with teaching us. And this is really key for us as, as Catholics uh, because uh, there are various forms of Gnosticism out there today. If we just sort of think the right thoughts, everything will be fine. Uh, but we actually preach that, that uh, you have to be incorporated into a sacramental reality, which includes like dealing with other people in actual communities, um, dealing with you know, actual materials in the liturgy. You know, we've got incense and candles and all that stuff. All this has an impact on the fact that we are embodied creatures. You know, we, we can't smell incense, we're just spirits. Okay, so um, our bodies are part of what God has given us for our salvation. They are good. Uh, when we're resurrected, we're going to have a spiritual body. I, I can't tell you exactly what that is. We'll be able to walk through walls and stuff like that. But uh, uh, we won't die. We won't get older or anything like that. Uh, uh, the, the corruption that we see in our bodies, we say, in some way is a result of sin entering the world, right? So... Um, the last reason why John wrote his gospel, and I'm going to come back to this idea of incarnation uh, before we're done today, because you know the prologue to John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God, all things came to be through him, through, without him nothing came to be. The whole first 19 verses of, uh, 18 verses of John's gospel are a very robust teaching on the incarnation. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we saw him, right? He, 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 was, he was with us. We, we saw him. We shared meals with him. We walked around with him. We touched him. John's first letter is, again, very insistent on this. We've seen him. We've touched him. We listened to him. We want to share this with you because it's, it's in being in communion with this man, who's also God, that we're saved. You know, it's, it's not through dispensing with the body. Uh, it's through be, having our bodies incorporated into a bigger family, okay? Um, so in addition to this sort of apologetic need that, that John's gospel addresses, the last one is a question of eschatology. Does anyone know what eschatology is? Yes, Michael. End of times, study of the end of times. Study of the, of the eschaton. Yes, the eschaton is the last time of the age, right? End of the world. And so eschatology is the, the discipline of studying the end of the world. Now you might think, how can we do that? Because we're not there yet. <laughs> but um, this is a, a, a particular genre within the Jewish scriptures is predicting the end of time. Uh, and the reason that the, the Jews are interested in this is because if you know the creator of time, if you know God, and you believe that God has ordained a certain history, uh, there's a certain story that, that humankind takes, and it's going to have a final denouement. It's going to have a, a purpose to it at the end. God is going to bring everything to a climax and, and then inaugurate this new age. Uh, if, if we know this God, then we can glean certain things from his prophets about what's going to happen 
between now and the inauguration of the next age. Uh, and so in the Old Testament, we have books like Daniel, uh, to a lesser extent, Ezekiel. Uh, but several of the prophets have these prophecies of what's going to happen at the end of time. And the book of Revelation, as I mentioned, is almost entirely concerned with this question, what's going to happen at the end of time. Now, there are two interesting things about eschatology. And you have to hold two things in balance. I uh, remember a talk that uh, Sister Diane Bergant gave right here in this room about when, 2000, year 2000. We had a series of lectures for the whole year. And she's a very esteemed scripture scholar. And she said, uh, uh, today, you know, the new age movement that you hear about uh, and um, maybe you heard about more 17 years ago, maybe, I don't know. Uh, the problem with the new age movement is this. The new age was inaugurated with the resurrection of Christ. There is not, not going to be any other new age. We already live in the new age. So there's a sense in which the world has already come to an end. It, we're just kind of waiting for the, the, it, it to kind of filter out, okay? So uh, the prophecies have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is why we as Catholics say things like the deposit of faith, nothing's going to be added to it. Now you've heard that kind of thing that the, the, the teaching of the church is what it is. We're not going to add anything. We might develop some things to address certain circumstances, but there will be no new revelation. You know, all, all that we need to know that's, that needs to be revealed to us is revealed in Jesus Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is going to remind us of everything Jesus taught us. That's from John's gospel, by the way. Um, we, we don't, there's, there will be no further revelation. So any talk of a, of a new revelation is not Catholic, all right? Now, but this raises the question, if the world has ended, what are we doing here? <laughs> and why are people still getting old and dying? And, and why are things going wrong? Why do we have wars and all this? And this is what's peculiar about what we claim as Catholics. And that is that uh, we live with two interlocking eschatologies. In one case, the end of the world has already arrived with the resurrection. And in another sense, we're still living in, with one foot in the old dispensation, okay? And the, the final sort of sorting out of all these things will only happen when, you know, the gospel's been preached to every creature. And if uh, we understand things that Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans, it's when uh, the, the Jewish people are welcomed fully into the church. Uh, as, as full brothers and sisters, okay? So there are these things that have to happen yet. Um, if, if you emphasize one of these aspects or the other too much, you'll get out of balance, right? So if you put the end of the world too far off, we're not there yet, then we get too focused on things in this world. We, we become secularized, right? We become too focused on the seculum, this world, this age, and we forget that the new age has already begun. We're already living it with one foot in it. And by the way, this is the importance of the liturgy. At the Holy Liturgy, we are at the new age. We're in it. <laughs> you know, remember, you've heard it said that the Eucharist is a foretaste of heaven, right? You've heard that? I mean, what we mean by that is when we're gathered around the altar and the Lord is feeding us from, from the Holy Table, uh, we are in heaven. All the saints are there. They're with us. When we gather around the altar. All those faithful Christians who have received Holy Communion have been faithful. They're with us. You know, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, anybody who's, who's gone uh, and has passed over into the new life, they're sharing the Eucharist with us at that moment. All the saints, you know, that's why we, we call upon the saints. The angels, that's why we paint angels on the ceiling. We write icons of the angels. The, the gathering of the nations is there. We're all, and in fact, all the future people. You know, the, the, as uh, Chesterton said, we might be the, the early Christians. If the world goes on for another 30,000 years, uh, they'll look back to us as the great founders, you know? <laughs> so, um, but all those people, you know, who knows how many children God has ordained are there to be, but they're all present at the Eucharist because there's only one sacrifice of the cross. There's only one bread. There's only one body. And so when we gather together, the new age is being realized. And if we have eyes of faith, we can see it, okay? Um, 
Now, again, then we're sent back into the world to bring everybody in, to, to preach the good news and say that the new age has arrived. Now's the time. You know, repent, believe in the kingdom of God. It's here. Um, but if we go too far in that direction, right, then um, we, we can become uh, forgetful of the things we need to do, the, the suffering that's going on in the world right now that we need to address. Okay, so there's a balance that we have to keep. And John's gospel is probably the profoundest in terms of dealing with this tension. Because it's clear in the gospel in many ways that the new age has arrived. And that's the, uh, I'm going to finish this today by talking about the book of signs. So the first 12 chapters, uh, John is concerned with showing the signs that Jesus gives us. These are all signs that the new age is here. So you know, there's the changing of water into wine. There's several prophecies in the Old Testament in Isaiah, in Joel, etc., where you know, one of the signs of the new age is that the, the hills are going to stream with wine. You know, wine is a sign of abundance of God's favor, of joy, of celebration, of sharing uh, joy together. Um, uh, when, when the people run out of wine at this wedding, you know, it's a sign of, of the end of the old age. And when Our Lady goes to our Lord and, and points this out, um, he's at first reluctant because his, his time hasn't come. He's not, he's not been risen from the dead yet, right? <laughs> and nonetheless, he works the sign to show that this is, this is the moment. This is the moment when the old age is passing away. The old things are passing away. The new kingdom is arriving. And the sign is that there's all this beautiful, tasty wine for everybody. At a wedding, you know, it's, it's so beautiful. Because again, if we don't have bodies, there's no point in a wedding, right? <laughs> uh, that's, that's part of the whole idea of, of weddings, is you're going to have uh, husband and wife come together and have children, right? And so, the, the, again, our, our Lord blesses this, but then consecrates it as a sacrament besides by inaugurating this, this new age. So all of the signs that Jesus accomplishes are, are helping us to see with the eyes of faith the inbreaking of the kingdom of God here and now, right now. So what, what looks to us like anybody who doesn't believe could come in here and say like, oh, there's just a bunch of people sitting around drinking coffee, listening to guy dressed funny talk a lot. Uh, actually, what we're doing is we're, we're actually realizing God's kingdom in this moment together, if we can see with eyes of faith, okay? But... The full consummation is still not yet. Our, our bodies haven't been glorified yet. They could be. If you're a mystic, you know, you actually bridge the gap. Uh, that's part of the importance of mystics in the church. So uh, what we call realized eschatology is the awareness that the kingdom is here now, that the end times are now. Uh, what we call future eschatology is awareness that we're not able to see it entirely yet. <laughs> You know, because we, we are not perfected yet. We're not, um, we're still growing in, in the faith. And, and so we hope that we'll be able to see it. Yes, Tony. I may be getting mm -hmm. out of your explanation, but I'm really curious about how the theme of light. I'm going to get to that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, themes of the Gospels, number six on my list here. <laughs> <laughs> so, um <coughs> So I think these are some of the apologetic concerns that John has. Um, that uh, our Lord was not a ghost, that we're not saved by ideas, but we're saved by our Lord's presence and our incorporation into him through the very physical realities of water, baptism, oil at confirmation, bread and wine at the Eucharist, etc. Okay, and then finally, um, to make sure that we don't get out of balance when it comes to eschatology. Because again, as, as the events of the resurrection start to get further and further in the past, there's a tendency to think like, well, I guess we thought that the new age was here, but it's not yet. So we still have to wait. But in fact, it is. <laughs> and so John wants to emphasize that for us. Um, let me talk a little more about signs, because this is a very interesting part of... John's Gospel. The book of signs, um, as I mentioned, it's the first 12 chapters of the Gospel. And uh, there's a big break 
at, at the end of chapter 12, our Lord kind of sums up his preaching. The evangelist says, you know, the, these things were preached and some people believed and others didn't believe. And then in chapter 30, the evangelist says, you know, our Lord, realizing that his time had come, right? He, uh, he, he met with his disciples in the upper room to celebrate the Last Supper. He removes his outer garments, puts on an apron, and washes the feet of the disciples. So there's a big break at chapter 13. And from there to the end of the gospel, it's basically the Holy Triduum. Okay, it's, it's, it's basically a narrative from 13 to 22 of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Easter week. And, um, you know, the, the octave of Easter gets its um, clearest statement in the Gospels in John's Gospel because it's one week after the resurrection that our Lord appears to Thomas. All right? And this is why the Gospel of, of Thomas doubting and then making his profession of faith is always read on the second Sunday of Easter. Okay, um, so, but we're going to talk about just the book of signs a little more today. Um, we often think of our, our Lord as working miracles, right? And a miracle, uh, the, the derivation or etymology of the word miracle is the Latin uh, mirum, which means wonder or one, you know, something wondrous. That's a surprising thing you're not <coughs> expecting. Um, in the synoptic gospels, uh, they tend to use words that stress this, this wonderment, so something unusual or powerful. So uh, our Lord does acts of power. Dunamis is the word in Greek. And what it shows is his mastery of the world. And it's an indication that he really is God. So when our Lord cures illnesses, when he multiplies the bread, when he walks on water, when he commands the water and obeys him, uh, these are signs that this is God in our midst. This isn't just a prophet. This is somebody more powerful than that who acts on his own authority. And so these are signs of, of Christ's divinity. Uh, John's gospel uses a different word. He uses the word semeon. Uh, semea is the plural, so signs. And uh, we get our word semantic from this. Okay, or, or semiotics, uh, the study of signs. By the way, uh, if you've seen the Da Vinci Code or read it, uh, there is no such word as symbology. <laughs> the word is semiotics, okay? Uh, symbology is something that Dan Brown just made up. Uh, uh, but a, a, a symbol is a sign, right? It's a sign. But what does a sign do? When we see a stop sign, for example, uh, it communicates something to us, right? You're supposed to stop here. Um, the sign itself doesn't, it, it's just a convention, right? Or if you see, um, I, I've been going through lots of airports lately. And when you get off the plane, one of the first things you look for is the, a sign that has like a silhouette of a man and a woman standing next to each other. because so you're looking for the bathroom, right? <laughs> and so that's a sign, like the, the, it's not the bathroom itself. And much less does it have anything to do with what goes on in the bathroom. But the, the sign gives me an idea of, okay, that's gonna get me to the bathroom. So I have to follow the signs. That's gonna get me to the reality that the sign is indicating. So a sign is a kind of intermediary that, that points us to something beyond itself, some meaning or some reality beyond itself. Um, the sacraments of the church are a particular kind of sign because they not only point beyond themselves, but they are the reality it's, itself, right? And so when we say that Christ is truly present in the, the sacrament of the altar, uh, again, if, if, if you're not a believer, you see bread, and the bread points to our Lord, but the bread also is our Lord. So the sacrament is a, a sign that actually communicates the grace that it represents, okay? But th this is all to say that John has a very sacramental understanding of our Lord's ministry, and when our Lord works signs, it's not simply that he does things that other people can't do. He's teaching by means of these signs. So I already mentioned the very first sign he works is the changing of water into wine at Cana. And it's not just that, wow, check out what I can do. I can change water into wine. I bet you can't do that, right? Um, it's, he's teaching. He, he is helping 
the apostles to understand how to read the Old Testament prophecies and to see them being fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus, okay? So when our Lord walks on water in John's gospel, it's the end of chapter six, or middle of chapter six, after he multiplies the loaves. Uh, Again, the, the point of this is not simply that he can do something that we can't do, or he does something that only God can do. That's true, uh, but it's also uh, a sign of his conquering of death. Okay, so the waters uh, in the Old Testament are a symbol of chaos and opposition to God. And frequently throughout the Psalms, we hear about God calming the waters or giving the waters uh, boundaries that they can't cross. And so when our Lord walks upon the water, um, he's not only showing that he's God, but he is foreshadowing in a certain way the resurrection of the dead of our human bodies because, uh, again, the water is a, a symbol of the dissolution of our bodies in death, and the dry land is a sign of the reconstitution of our bodies in, uh, yeah, in, in an ordered way, right? So um, our bodies function because they have a certain kind of order to them, and when we die and the soul leaves, uh, the bodies become disordered and they, they, they go back into uh, dust, right? They, they decay. So the water symbols decay and chaos. Walking on the water symbolizes resurrection from the dead, various ways. Uh, the seven signs are the, the changing of water into wine at Cana, uh, the healing of the official's son in chapter three, the healing of the, the crippled man at the pool of Bethzatha in chapter five, the multiplication of the loaves uh, in chapter six, walking on water after the people come and they try to take our Lord away to make him king. He, he escapes and he, he walks across the, uh, the Sea of Galilee to get away from everybody, but they, they find him on the other side anyway. Um, then uh, the two most important signs, which we read at the end of Lent every year, uh, the curing of the blind man, the man born blind, Again, there's much more going on in chapter 9. This is a really interesting story if you read it carefully. Chapter 9 is all about this man born blind. Uh, of course, it's a wonderful thing for a man to regain his sight or to gain sight for the first time. Uh, but when you read how our Lord teaches this man, what we see is this, is he, he, this man who is born blind is a sign of our state before we had faith. And his healing shows what it means to come to faith. And what happens to this man is he finally claims that Christ is the Messiah before the high priests and they kick him out of the synagogue. (laughs) Right? So that's that's the the sign of of sight. And I've said several times today that faith is a way of seeing the world and seeing God's activity in the world in the the most um, quiet way unassuming places. This is what the contemplative life should be about, what we monks should specialize in, seeing God's action right now going on. But that requires us to be able to see, and this, is, this gift of faith is a gift. It's not something we can achieve on our own. It's something that our Lord gives us. That's, that's this sign of him giving sight to this man. Okay, And then there are consequences of it. If we receive this sight, we're going to be persecuted by the world. And that's, that's, that's what goes along with it because we're going to be at odds with the world that's passing away because we're moving into this new world then. Finally, the last sign is, what have I left out? Lazarus, Lazarus yes, the raising of Lazarus. Obviously, you know, the, the clearest sign of the, the end of the reign of death. Uh, death no longer has power over us, right? Um, we can go to the grave, but the power of the Holy Spirit uh, just as Christ was raised in the spirit, we too uh, who have been baptized into Christ will be raised. And so this is, again, not just a sign that God can do this when he chooses, but this is what he offers to all of those who have faith in him. And again, there's a lot of teaching that goes on. Remember, he has a long discussion with Lazarus' sister, Martha. And she says, yes, I believe in the resurrection at the end of time. And our Lord responds to her, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. If you believe in me, 
Uh, you won't die. Okay, so it's much stronger than just like, I might raise you if I feel like it. It's, it's the resurrection. The truth of it is in your midst right now. And um, so this is uh, what this book of signs is doing. And then uh, next, next time I um, talk to you all, I, I have to talk to Father Brendan whether it'll be next month or December. Uh, but I'll talk more about the, the book of glory, chapters 13 to 22. Um, and, uh, and then I'll start going through more of the nuts and bolts of how John has put his gospel together. Uh, before I go do a, a couple more things about the key themes of the gospel, including light and darkness, uh, let me stop here for a moment and see if there are any other questions that you have. Kevin. Um, I've heard a talk by, I think, uh, John Bergsman where he relates each of the seven signs to one of the seven sacraments. Oh, my God, that's great. Yeah. I was wondering if you have thoughts on that. Uh, I, I have to admit I don't. I haven't heard that, uh, but that... Uh, the, the, the seven sacraments of the church were sort of standardized pretty late by our, uh, I mean, meaning like 13th century. Um, that doesn't, and, and probably one of the reasons that the, the church came to recognize seven sacraments is that there were these sevens. Uh, seven is uh, itself a sign of completion and fullness. And so the, the sacramental order, it would make sense that there'd be seven sacraments. Also, that there'd be seven. Uh, I have seen these seven related to the seven days of creation, for example. And so there's probably a connection in there. But since I haven't seen what he, he said, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to dive in. <laughs> yeah. I should mention, though, um, scholarship on John's gospel these days, there, there's been a, a, an about face in the last 60 or 70 years. In the early 20th century, there was a big movement to show that John's gospel is very late, very influenced by Greek thought, almost Gnostic in itself. And um, one of the things that turned the tide was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because what we discovered is that in Jewish thought, well before the life of Christ, these sorts of uh, discussions, these, this sort of symbolism, um, light and darkness, talking about the word of God. These things were all part of Jewish culture several generations before Christ. And uh, so what appeared to be sort of an infiltration of Christianity by Greek thought in John's gospel, making it late. We, I mentioned that, you know, some people actually think John's gospel is early. They'd say it's like, you know, the year 60 or something like that. That's probably a little bit early just because the theological depth of this gospel is such that I, I tend to think it, it was worked out over several decades of disciples meeting together and discussing and, and seeing how things worked. But um, these, these sorts of symbols would have been, if you ever read the Gnostic gospels, they love this sort of num numerology, you know, they love, love these number symbols. But um, again, what we've discovered is that was also part of the Jewish thought of the time. It was not uh, separable. So, other questions about uh, what I've said so far? Yes? Um, so, this question is a little bit tangential. Uh, when you were mentioning about how uh, we cannot add anything to the revelation of God, mm -hmm. um, what is our relationship with private revelation? Sure, yeah. Because there's a lot mm -hmm. of like, um, prophecies and that right. I tend to be a little Yeah, that's a very good question. So I think one thing to understand is that we're going to use the word revelation in two slightly different ways in talking about this related to each other, that God is, is speaking and revealing something. Um, but when we talk about revelation in general, uh, we're, we're talking really about Christ himself, and uh, we have everything we need in his life and in the Holy Spirit to understand what God is teaching us. On the other hand, um, it is the case that the church has recognized that individuals will receive particular commissions or particular messages from God, or, or from Our Lady, for example, um, 
These we call private revelations, and these are binding on the person who receives them if they're authentic, but they're not binding on anyone else. You're free to believe them or not. So even something like uh, Fatima, uh, that, that was, uh, that's not part of the deposit of faith, strictly speaking, but you're free to believe it because the church has authenticated it as a revelation to the persons who were there. Um, but, it, but it's not necessary for salvation to believe in it. Uh, it would be if you were there. <laughs> you know, if you were one of the, the, the young people who saw uh, Our Lady and saw the sun move and all that. Uh, right, I, I'm, not sure how, I'm not sure how that would affect those people, to be honest with you. I, I'm, I'm not an expert on Fatima at all. Um, and, and again, my, personally, I, I tend to be a little bit uh, reticent about private revelation of that sort. Um, I think it's very beautiful, but uh, the, the scriptures, the sacraments of the church have so much richness to them that, that there's, plenty to, there, there's plenty to feed on. You know, the, the Lord speaks to us in all kinds of ways without having to rely on, on these other things, which, which are not binding on us. You know, so... Um, but again, the Holy Spirit can do what he wishes, and so he can speak directly to any one of us. And if we think that God is speaking to us and telling us to do something, we should probably speak to uh, you know, a, a person whose discernment we trust to find out if it's real. Um, though uh, John of the Cross takes a pretty Spartan view of these things. He, he tends to say, like, uh, you know, if you have any visions in prayer, just ignore them. <laughs> whatever grace God wants to impart he will do anyway and the, the danger of these sorts of private revelations is there an incitement to pride you know that, that we can think we're special because we've had a special revelation and it's better just to go with sort of what everybody's got so yeah I'll tell you what let me take about five or ten minutes and just bring up some key themes from John's gospel that I haven't already touched on um, so let's start with uh, Tony's question about light. Um, so uh, one of the, the heresies from uh, this, this period of time, and one of the things we should be aware of at, at, the, at this time of our Lord's incarnation is that it was a time of great cultural upheaval. And um, the... the the great instigator in this, as I've already mentioned, was Alexander the Great, but, uh, but he's, a, he's a creature of his own era. And just the whole idea that there'd be an empire that would unite all the peoples. Uh, we see this again in the prophecy of Daniel. Uh, there are a series of empires that are gonna unite the people. Uh, we see this in Revelation. And uh, generally speaking, Rome is understood to be the last big empire. But the thing about this is uh, we see this in our own uh, day in say um, what I would consider an American empire that we have today is that where American culture goes, it can bring many benefits, but it also can bring a lot of upheaval. You know, it's a mixed bag. Uh, to impose American commerce on certain countries might involve us in military operations, for example. And we see say our invasion of Iraq in 2003 has meant the dispersal of all kinds of people all over the place. Um, military interventions in Libya, uh, upheaval in Syria, we see people moving all over the place, right? We have refugees in Europe, we have refugees all over the place. Uh, the situation at the time of our Lord's incarnation was not entirely dissimilar, though of course uh, the movement of peoples was much slower in just the sense that they, they didn't have modern transportation and so on. But the kind of cultural upheaval was very similar. And so there was a great welter of religious ideas from all over the place. And one of the ideas that came out of Persia is uh, what we call Manichaeism. Manichaeism is based on the teachings of a prophet named Mani, who said that there's an empire of light and there's an empire of darkness. And these are two sort of competing forces in the world, in the cosmos. And uh, of course, we want to be on the side of light but these are kind of equal forces and therefore they're gonna be fighting for a long time, perhaps forever. And um, uh, this was a very powerful idea, so much so that young St. Augustine spent 13 years as a, a kind of catechumen in the Manichaean church. Um, so there, John uses a lot of this terminology 
Uh, you know, the light came into the world, uh, light came into the darkness, or the darkness could not understand it or could not comprehend it. Um, when our Lord talks about the man born blind, he uses a lot of light and darkness imagery. And as I mentioned, um, in the early 20th century, critics like um, Rudolf Bultmann uh, is a name you might have heard of, um, probably the most famous scriptural exegete in the early 20th century. He saw this as the influence of Manichaeism. What we've discovered, as I mentioned, is that uh, actually um, the, this is one of the primary symbol structures for the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what they're getting at is that the, the chosen people, so these were written 100, 150 years before Christ, and it's right around the time that the Greeks conquered Jerusalem and were imposing uh, these, uh, this new culture. And so a group of uh, Levitical families and others, so people connected to the temple, withdrew out into the desert and formed a kind of sect where they had a teaching about this darkness that had descended upon the, the Holy Land and the need for the, the remnant of the Jewish people to remain in the light. And today it's, it's generally seen that it's, it's actually this inner discussion within Judaism of the time that gives John his, his understanding. And if you think about it, if we go back again to uh, Genesis chapter 1, okay, um, God begins creation by saying, let there be light. So already at the beginning of the scriptures themselves, darkness is an image uh, that's opposed to God, but God doesn't engage in battle with darkness as an equal. God has mastery over it. He simply speaks and the light obeys and the darkness finds its own place, right? There's the the sun rules over the day and the moon rules over the night. God arranges all of these things with a mastery of, of someone who has no rival. God, God has no rival. In Manichaeism, light and darkness are in this sort of eternal struggle. Uh, but in our faith, uh, light, uh, we, we have darkness in this world because we're on our way again to the final revelation. But light, again, uh, coming from God, has no, uh, there's no rivalry. But if we want to put this in a stronger theological sense, uh, the way, say, the scholastics would talk about this is um, we, when we speak about God, we don't speak univocally, uh, which is to say we don't say when we say that God exists, when we say that uh, we exist, we don't use the word exist in the same way when we talk about God and we talk about ourselves. God exists uh, in a completely different sense than we do. And what's great about this is that again, God has complete mastery over all things. It's, it's, we're not, God is not one creature, one being among other beings. Uh, God is transcendent over all these things. And those of us, you know, when, when we come into contact with God, uh, we're not rivals with God. When, when we submit to God's will for our lives, we don't do so in such a way that our wills are rival to God's. Rather, there's a sense in which God's will elevates our will and perfects it. Okay, so um, when the light of humankind comes into the world and, and drives out the darkness, uh, again, this, this should be something that we find very liberating because it's an invitation to us to step outside of this world and see things from the perspective of God. Yeah, Tony. Well, I have, I think I think first you made reference, I mm -hmm. think I've heard Father Brennan make reference to an Eastern idea of the uncreated light. The uncreated light, yes, exactly. And I, I, I am interested in that subject partly from the reading of Genesis because mm -hmm. there is this kind of light that mm -hmm. God creates first. Right. But he doesn't create anything that gives light until the fourth day. That's right. Right. Is that the uncreated light? Well, I would say um, you, can, you can understand it a couple ways. I mean, one way, if he says, let there be light, 
and it didn't exist before, it didn't, and it's obeying him in some way. It's not the uncreated light, because the uncreated light is, is God himself. You know, it's sort of God as God communicates to his creatures. Um, and again, you know, I, I'm using light as a symbol because when we talk about God's uncreated light, we're not talking about light like that. We're talking about something that is a spiritual plane and is on the level of faith that enlightens us in faith. And so we understand everything from this new perspective, this transcendent perspective, rather than in a kind of, you know, um, this is why, again, I'll say, you know, our Lord's glorified body, I kind of made, a, a, a made light of this, but when he walks through walls, uh, it's because his body has been elevated to this new reality that's not in competition. You know, I, I don't have to fight with this wall for space anymore. We can share it if we want. You know, uh, we, we don't have these restrictions anymore, but that's the, this uncreated light is God's own being in some way, communicated to us so that we comprehend him in, in some way or, or encounter him. And when the contemplative is practicing nepsis, mm -hmm. the guardian of the illumination of the heart, mm -hmm. is, does, that suggests that our hearts are either are some kind of apprehender of, yes. of light. Yes, yes. Well, hu human beings were made for communion with God and after our baptisms, we actually carry God's own life in us. So right. our hearts are actually, are actually of the stuff of this illumination. After baptism, yes. Uh, before that, we have a capacity for this. Right? So, so the human being has a capacity for God just, uh, before, before baptism. But one of the, the inauguration of the new age is, is baptism. And in baptism, we partake of Christ's resurrection and uh, death and his resurrection, and the pouring of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And that means the divine life is, is our own life. And so we, we actually bear that uncreated light within us. But that's after baptism. And that's why baptism is so important, why we, why we want to preach that, that others should be baptized. We, we'd like to share that with them. Um, nepsis would be, so this idea of nepsis is a, it's a word in monastic spirituality, meaning watchfulness. So we, we pay close <coughs> attention to our thoughts. And uh, we can come to a place where we can become aware. Some mystics of the church will talk about seeing the soul's own light, right? And so this means we, we become aware at a very sort of visceral level of God's life within us and, and our sharing of it. Uh, you can read this in Western sources and people like uh, Teresa of Avila. Um, she, I think she's, she's the clearest on this, that... Uh, Again, our souls are made for God, but then um, in the inauguration of the new age, we actually receive God and become God. We become divinized. But we don't, when we're baptized, we don't see that right away. You, know, it's, you see how eschatology is both realized when we're baptized, we're already raised from the dead, but at the same time, we're not there yet. And we're trying to you know, sort of bring the two together through our own... Uh, practice of the faith. But all of it is made from this uncreated light which appears to be the raw material of creation. It's God's being. Ah, no. Uh, the creation is not God's being. They're separable. That's why God is transcendent. Yeah. Creation is, is dependent entirely on God, but it's not God. If it's God's own stuff, that would be called pantheism, and that, or, that's not actually what we believe. So it's this uncreated light, not God. The uncreated light is God, as God communicates, saying as God communicates, because God in, in the Trinity's own relationship with the, the three persons, uh, the, the apprehension is immediate. But because we're creatures and we're not God by nature, we need God's life communicated to us. And the way we, we metaphorically talk about this is through God's illumination, <coughs> which is uh, the communication of this uncreated light into our own hearts and souls and minds, etc. This is, this is pretty heady stuff, I know. I, was, <laughs> I, I, I hope, since I'm recording this, I, I hope I haven't said anything that's actually not correct. Uh, um, but uh, 
Yeah, I think we'll get back to this because these, these are actually important topics in John. Um, and as I mentioned, John's gospel is the strongest in terms of realized eschatology. The kingdom is here now. Uh, what baptism does for us is it actually divinizes us now. Though, again, we can't always see it. And, and the contemplative life in one sense is uh, a quest to allow God's grace to infiltrate us so much that we see God everywhere, like literally. <laughs> you know, that, that God's presence is, is felt and, and not just, a, just an idea that we have or, or something we know in faith and hope, but something that's, that is present and realized. Okay, we'll have to stop there because again, um, our realized eschatology requires me to be at the liturgy. <laughs> so our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth.